Hello, I'm your host, Terry Fees, Vice Chancellor for Research and Innovation at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome to Season 2 of Buff Innovator Insights. This podcast features some of the most innovative, groundbreaking ideas in the world. I'll also introduce you to the people behind the innovations, from how they got started to how they are changing the future. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Raylynn Rabaka, Professor of African, African American, and Caribbean Studies in the Department of Ethnic Studies. He is also the inaugural director of the newly established Center for African and African American Studies. He earned a bachelor's degree of fine arts at University of the Arts, and then his master's and PhD at Temple University. Dr. Rabaka is the author of numerous scholarly articles, book chapters, and essays, as well as more than a dozen books. He currently teaches topics including the Harlem Renaissance, the Black Lives Matter movement, and introduction to hip-hop studies. During today's podcast, Dr. Rabaka describes the mix of church, poverty, family, and jazz that shaped his early years. He also tells us about the unique combination of mentors and educational opportunities that ultimately led him to CU Boulder. Finally, he talks about the newly established Center for African and African American Studies at CU Boulder and his vision for its future. Let's meet Dr. Rayland Rabaka. Hi, Rayland. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'd like to just kick right off and get to kind of at the core of you. Your family is so important to you, and your mother and your grandmother played an important role in your life. How would you describe them? Oh, church ladies. <laughs> um, grew up in a very, very strict religious household, and that really shaped my early years. But um, obviously, growing up in the Black church, uh, was fundamental. So that really sort of shaped the whole way I see the world. So my, my worldview is very sort of couched in African-American religious culture. Well, let's let's dig in a little bit more here. You grew up in the South with much of it in Texas. So I know music played a very important role in your life. How did you get started with music? And what was it that drew you in? Uh, gospel music. So the first form of music that I ever really started playing as a musician was really as a youth minister of music. So church music. And from there, um, I really got involved in jazz music. Now, part of the reason I gravitated towards jazz was because that was one of the ways that I could help my moms pay the rent. Um, where gospel was the sacred music that I gravitated toward jazz was the secular music. And in terms of jazz, it allowed me to be a working musician at a very young age. So I got my first major gig as a jazz musician at age nine. That's when I got my first $100 bill. I thought it was Monopoly money because I'd never <laughs> seen a $100 bill. And it changed my life forever because I was able to help my moms, you know, buy groceries and do different things. And so it just the economics of it, growing up in poverty, the way that I did, uh, being able to make money playing this music that I would play for free. Yeah. So it was the beginning of my life as a professional musician. 
I also joke and say it was the end of my childhood because when, mm. you know, the other kids on the block would go out and play, I was rehearsing. I was practicing getting ready for my next gig. So I feel like um, it was both a blessing and a curse, if you will. Music was also your ticket to a really top quality education. And you mentioned that you had to audition at a very young age. Talk about that. Yeah, it's really, really um, just an incredible experience to receive arts education. This is, in again, the public school system in Dallas, Texas. And they have just a really renowned high school there called, uh, it was called Arts Magnet is what people commonly call it. But the, the proper name is Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. And from that high school, you have a lot of incredible artists like Edie Brickell, um, uh, Paul Simon's wife, Edie Brickell, um, Roy Hargrove, jazz musician, Erica Badu, Neil Soul musician, Nora Jones, jazz musician. I mean, there's so many people that came out of uh, that high school that it's really, really incredible. So I was one of those kids where, you know, after a lot of the social struggles of the 60s, they had all of these arts magnet high schools set up around the country. And it was it was really an opportunity for somebody like myself, a very, very poor kid, to get access to just, I don't know, top-notch music education, arts education and everything. And I really feel like I, you know, as a jazz musician, I, I was swinging. So I would swing my way <laughs> from the neighborhood you know, to college. So being at that high school exposed me to so many different artistic movements and so many different genres of music uh, and everything. I feel like it was really, um, it was a real turning point in my uh, young life. What were some of your other favorite subjects in school? What else did you enjoy in terms of uh, academic subjects? English. I liked literature, partly because of the Harlem Renaissance. So, I mean, I honestly, Terry, I thought I could, when I grew up, I thought I could go to Harlem and hang out with Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes um, and Conti Cullen and Claude McKay and George Douglas Johnson and, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois. And so I honestly, I liked that vibe of just sort of having lots of different artists and intellectuals and activists all in one space and that's sort of something that has preoccupied me since my adolescence. It's really fascinating. I, I do want to go back to one more thing. I know you've talked about being very poor growing up and growing mm. up in the projects. What was your experience coming from that, your home life, going to this art school, where which was in many ways very elite, and you were among the elite? What was that experience like for you? Well, I mean, this is really difficult. And of course, this is me reflecting back. So this is all hindsight. But when I think about it right now, it was both an angst-filled experience and it was also a breakthrough experience. Uh, it, it caused me a great deal of anxiety because obviously a lot of the kids I went to high school with had the latest cars and nice clothes and everything like that. And so you can't help but to feel tight and a bit demoralized. On the other hand, what I realized was when it comes to art in the United States of America, 
a lot of the social constructions are transcended. So it wasn't necessarily about my class background, my uh, working class background and my underclass background. It wasn't necessarily about my race or my gender or my uh, religious affiliation, any of that. It was really a, based on talent. And so it's like artists create their own unique world where we vibe with somebody, we connect with people based on their talent, based on their ability to express themselves and say something about the modern moment. And in that context, Terry, I became one of the most popular kids, you know, in the high school. And it was based on talent. So nobody really cared where I came from. It was more about where I'm going to go. So where, where can your talent take you? And so I was very geeky, very bookish at that time. I was probably reading about a book a week. Books was a way for me to escape, was to get away, if you will. It would take me to a whole nother world. So I would read these books um, about all different parts of the world, but especially the Caribbean, uh, Africa, Latin America. And I really thought one day I was going to be able to go there, you know, when I grow up and everything. And my teacher started telling me, if you keep swinging like this, you're going to go on tour all over the world. So the more they would tell me that, the more I would be in the practice room. You know, I'm in the woodshed working it out, you know, trying yeah. to get better <laughs> as a musician. And I'm literally thinking like, this is going to be my ticket. So Terry, for me, I've always seen education as a tool for self-transformation, but also social transformation. Actually, your story is so inspiring. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you're um, much too kind. <laughs> um, so I'd love to just kind of continue on. Then from high school, which you had this very unique experience in high school, you made a decision to go to college. How did you decide where you would go? And how did you navigate that process? It was a very gut-wrenching, scary experience because nobody in my family has ever gone to a college or a university. And thinking about going to college was something that excited me, but it also terrified me, if I can be perfectly honest with you. We had guidance counselors and every year different colleges would come to our high school and they would hold auditions and we would create these video, these VHS tapes of us performing and we would send them off to different colleges. So you had two opportunities, Terry. You could either sort of take the audition when they come to the school, but not all of them would come every year. Or if you wanted to go somewhere else, you could um, send your VHS tape out. And I must have sent out maybe 25 or 30 of these VHS tapes. And I got into most of the top schools, uh, if not all of the top schools that I applied to. But the problem was, Terry, because I grew up in abject poverty, it, I needed scholarships. So it wasn't just getting into the colleges. How do I pull down scholarships to be able to pay for college? And that's something that, you know, when you're a 16 or 17 year old kid, you're just excited that colleges are interested in you, but you don't really know, understand about scholarships. So that's where the guidance counselors uh, came into play um, as well. So you never said where you went. So where did you go to college? I went to the University of the Arts, which is one of the premier uh, arts conservatories uh, in the country. And I went there, one, obviously because they gave me a full scholarship, two, 
they emphasize two tracks. So if you take the performing arts tract or the visual arts tract, you still have to take a philosophy of art track where they ground you in the specific aesthetics, which means the art theory of whatever genre um, that you are developing expertise in. So as a jazz musician, um, literally I was able to do jazz studies. So where not only was I was able to perform, but I, I could understand the history of jazz, jazz criticism, jazz literature. I was fascinated that jazz was not merely music in, in the roaring 1920s, right? They actually called it the jazz age. And so here is African-American music, Terry, that becomes a metaphor for the entire an entire epoch, an entire era in American history. And so I began to think about that and say, wait, wow, hip hop, this thing called rap music of my generation, this also is the soundtrack of modern America, at least for young folk at the time. This is the soundtrack of modern America. And then if you look at MTV and VH1 and all of these sort of video shows, um, rap was all over. And so I began to see images of black and brown folk, you know, musicians doing it at a very, very high level. And I began to think maybe I could possibly have a career um, as a musician, as a music historian, as a music critic. So I would just want to, to probe a little bit. Did you have a, a, a single experience or a mentor during your undergraduate experience that, that created some kind of transformative decision, direction of where you would go from there? I, I had a couple of them because I'm a geek. Uh, first and foremost, I would say Dr. Camille Paglia, uh, one of the leading feminist aesthetes, uh, feminist art critics in the country uh, at the University of the Arts. And she really, really um, took me under her wing and exposed me to cultural aesthetics uh, to feminist aesthetics, to queer aesthetics, to to the fact uh, of the matter, uh, Terry, is that even if you come from an oppressed group in America, um, you actually can use art as a medium to express yourself. And so I really got into protest art. So I would say Do Dr. Palia, Camille Palia, uh, was a huge influence. And then I got exposed to African-American studies. So my first African-American studies uh, classes ever, um, I had an undergrad. And most of those professors were actually PhD students at Temple University, which had the first PhD program in African American studies. And that had a significant impact on me because it was actually in one of those classes that I got an opportunity to revisit The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. I first read that book in junior high school and it really just shaped so much um, of my experience, to be perfectly honest with you. Well, we'll come back to William Du Bois. Um, but before we get there, next you went on to pursue a master's and then a doctorate degree. Did you know what kind of job you would hope to get after getting your PhD? Ah. I think I was just hoping to get a job. I yeah. mean, it was so, if I can, if I can be candid, I was sitting up there teaching at a Philadelphia Community College. I was, you know, as a as a TA. Um, obviously, I studied at Temple University with Molefi Asante, um, Cornell West, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., Kwame Anthony Apia. So there was a lot of folks who were really heavy hitters, uh, if you will, within African American studies, and they would come through. 
uh, our department because again, as I said, at the time it was one of two PhD programs in African American studies. And so it was a really, it was the place to be. People called it the black Mecca, you know, where people, all of these artists and intellectuals and activists would come together. Uh, and it seemed to me, Terry, when I was in grad school, I'm telling you, it seemed like it might not be the case, but it seemed like once a week there was somebody just incredible coming through to deliver a lecture, whether it was Alice Walker or Toni Morrison or Cornel West or Robin D.G. Kelly. I mean, there was always folks coming through. And so that really piqued my interest where I began to think that, hmm, maybe I could come out of here and be a professor. So what brought you to CU Boulder in the early 2000s? Wow. Um, I, <laughs> when I came out of grad school, I accepted a job at California State University, Long Beach. But that, that's a teaching heavy school, Terry. So I had a five, five teaching load. I taught five classes in the fall semester and five classes in the spring semester. So when the University of Colorado Boulder said, hey, bruh, we'll give you two classes a semester. I jumped at the opportunity <laughs> to come to Boulder. I mean, can you imagine? Here's somebody like me, Terry, that in African-American studies, most of the people that had graduated up to that uh, time, I think I was number 63, to get the PhD in the field, most of them were at teaching schools. They were at uh, HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities, or they were at community colleges. So there were very few with PhDs in African-American studies who were at Research One universities. And what attracted me to Boulder was the fact that Manning Marable um, had been out here in the Department of Ethnic Studies. Joy James had immediately preceded me in the Department of Ethnic Studies. And so these are obviously iconic figures within my field. And once they vacated this position in African-American studies, I went after it. And obviously everything worked out 15 years ago <laughs> and I was able to come out here. The fact that they were not only going to uh, give me a 2-2 teaching load, but I was also going to have a small research portfolio that would allow me to travel to Africa and the Caribbean and all throughout the South and other chocolate cities, <laughs> uh, cities with high concentrations of African-Americans. It just blew my mind, you know, that the school was going to help to pay for my research whoa, you know, <laughs> this this place called Boulder sounds like a little bit of heaven to me. Uh, of course, I got here and I went through culture shock, but I, I'm going to leave that alone, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's go to your scholarship because I think this is really fascinating. You know, throughout your career, you focus your scholarship on William Du Bois. And I love your story of your first introduction to who he was. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I just want to shout out Mrs. Robinson. It's my first grade teacher. So I was in the first grade, Terry, and I was precocious, as I've already explained. And it was Black History Month. And Mrs. Robinson handed out these cards. They was like on placards. And on one side, it would have an image of a, a Black History Month figure. And on the other side, it would have a small excerpt about their life and, and who they were. And I, of course, wanted Duke Ellington uh, Charlie Parker, or Theolonis Monk. And Mrs. Robinson gave me a card with what I believed was a French man on it. And it was Dubois. I was, you know, I thought I, you know, I thought I knew something. And I got upset 
And I went to Mrs. Robinson's desk and said, I don't understand. This is Black History Month. And you sit up here and gave me a Frenchman. Everybody else got black people. How come I can't get some black people, you know, on my card? And she said, Raylan, if you you need to get somewhere and sit down, if you would read as much as you run your mouth, you really could do something. Now, go back there and read that card and don't make me call your mama. And I said, OK, yes, ma'am. You know, all you got to say is, you know, call my mama and I'm going to act right. So I went back to my desk and I read the card and Terry when I read the back of that card, it changed my life forever. I read about William Edward Burkhardt Du Bois. I read about how he graduated with his PhD from Harvard University. I read about how he founded the NAACP. I read about how he wrote the souls of Black folk and helped to usher the Harlem Renaissance into being. And something just clicked inside of me that that I could grow up and be an intellectual, an artist, and an activist. And, and you have. So, um, <laughs> so tell me, what classes do you teach at CU Boulder so I can come sit in on them? <laughs> oh, oh, you are so sweet. Uh, I teach a course on the Harlem Renaissance. I teach a course on the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement. I teach a course on the Black Lives Matter Movement. Believe it or not, I was teaching one of the first courses on the Black Lives Matter movement in the country. And my most popular class is a class on uh, the hip hop movement, which is called Introduction to Hip Hop Studies. And that is where really that course serves as like a feeder for our department, because a lot of students come into that class not necessarily knowing what African American studies is. And I try to hook them into uh, the, the field. And I do that by trying to emphasize that African-American studies is an interdisciplinary discipline. I know I'm putting it badly, but uh, by which I mean that we study not simply race, but also gender, class, sexuality, religious affiliation, ability slash disability. Like we really sort of want to make sure that people don't overdetermine black folk based on race, that we also want to sort of factor in their gender, which I'm very committed to black feminism, sexuality. I'm very into Black queer, Black trans studies. Not all Black folk are straight. Class, I've been telling you, uh, Terry, about my underclass and working class background and everything. And so again, I am so much more than merely race or, or, or culture in that sense. I also want to factor in a lot of other areas that intersect and impact my life. Excellent. You recently founded the Center for African and African American Studies, known as CAUSE. Why did you start the center and what do you hope to achieve? Uh, I founded the center because from the time that I came to Boulder in 2005, I realized that unlike many other public universities, the University of Colorado at Boulder does not have a space dedicated to uh, Black history, Black culture, and the Black struggle. And this is something I have been campaigning behind the scenes for 15 years and when the Black Lives Matter movement happened, I realized that this is our moment. This is our time. We have founded this center. And the center, Terry, will have three programs. Um, research program, visual and performing arts program, and a student services program. And in that sense, I can't tell you how excited I am and the students are and, and Black folk all throughout the Denver metropolitan area are 
uh, to actually have a little piece of the rock, a little piece of the Rocky Mountains that is dedicated to uh, Black history, Black culture, Black struggle. So what do you think will be your greatest challenge to achieving the vision for the center? Funding, <laughs> uh, <laughs> money. I'm talking to you, Terry. I hope you hear me. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but no, to, with all, all due respect, um, funding, I think, will be a real challenge. Um, I wanted uh, a postdoc, uh, dissertation fellowships, the whole range. And so there's a there's a wide variety of things that go beyond the startup budget. We're going to have, um, obviously, distinguished lecture series. We have a performing arts series, a music series, like a concert series, uh, a a, a film screening series called the Africana Cinema Series. And so there will be a lot of different things that we have going on in this particular center that I believe will attract a wide variety of people that typically don't think of a CU as a center um, for uh, studying Black history and Black culture. That's, That's just fantastic. So as you think about the next decade or two, so I'm going to push you out there to the future, (laughs) what are you optimistic about and what is your hope for the future of the work that you do and the breakthroughs that will be found? Well, it's, I think a lot of it has to do with getting the center off the ground, making sure that we are self-sustaining, whether it's through um, grants or, or donations or probably a combination of both but making sure that we can grow and develop to our fullest potential. I don't know what our fullest potential actually is because we're just getting started. I would love to um, invite allies, you know, people who are um, not African-American, not uh, African people, not Caribbean people, but I would like for them to come and join with us in this important work long-term. I want to create a center where Everyone is welcome to come and study and learn about various aspects of the Black experience. And so to really sort of create a kind of synergy where we can get together and have critical dialogue about issues that are really, really pressing uh, for uh, Africans, African-Americans, is going to be really, really important. I think you encapsulated that extremely well. So I'll just end with one last question. What are you most proud of in your career? I like to think that part of my legacy is how I'm also trying to share that with my students. I want my students to dream really, really big. But Terry, I also want to give them the tools to build. I want our generation to leave a mark, not simply on this institution, but on this country. And so lastly, Terry, my legacy, I hope, will be one of institutional transformation. What I mean by that is, I think once this center is established, people will know that you and I, Terry, were out here. They will know that under your leadership, (laughs) we helped to found this brand new center. So we are literally transforming this institution that we love so much. So I've identified some problems on the Boulder campus but I've also come up with those solutions. As a good social scientist in the Du Bois tradition, I don't just identify problems, I offer up solutions to those problems. Well, this has been so much fun to hear your thoughts today, Rayland, and what a treat it is to be able to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. 
And I know our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing your whole background and your approach to life, which is so positive, and you are going to make that positive change you've talked about. Thank you so much for this invitation and this opportunity to dialogue with you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Raylan Rabaka, Professor of African, African American, and Caribbean Studies, and Director of the Center for African and African American Studies. To learn more about Dr. Rabaka or for more Buff Innovator Insights episodes, visit www.colorado.edu slash R-I-O slash podcast. I'm your host and Vice Chancellor for Research and Innovation at CU Boulder, Terry Fees. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Buff Innovator Insights.